we have Amanda Schoonmaker from the Center of Boreal Research with Nate in Peace River. Amanda, do you want to uh, welcome, first off, welcome to Industry Talks with Fortech. And uh, yeah, do you want to just maybe explain a bit about the place that you work and, and uh, your expertise in the industry? Sure. Um, yeah, thank you. And thank you uh, for having me on today to talk a little bit about our center and our, our research team here. Um, again, I'm uh, Amanda Schoonmaker. I'm a, one of the uh, researchers at the Nate Center for Boreal Research. Uh, we are physically located in Peace River, Alberta, um, about 500 kilometers northwest of Edmonton. And uh, it's a smaller uh, research center. The facility itself is about 9,000 square feet. We have two laboratories, an office space, an outdoor growing area, and a three-bay uh, greenhouse with, uh, with controls for um, environmental settings. And um, we aim to help uh, industry find interesting and novel ways to uh, restore uh, disturbed um, systems back into either uh, productive forests, wetlands, or anything else in between, depending on the, the outcome of um, that particular site. So we have a, three research teams, uh, one in forest land reclamation, which is the, the team I head up, another one in peatland restoration, which is headed up by my uh, colleague, Dr. Binshu, and uh, plant and seed technologies, which is also a technology access center, and that's headed up by Dr. Jean-Marie Sauté. And we also have a, um, a presence in um, research extension and education, and uh, that is a, another uh, program that really tries to get a lot of this information that we're doing in the field uh, back out uh, to the public and to industry and to practitioners to ensure that the things we're learning on the ground are being translated into knowledge that folks can uh, take up and, and utilize in ways that make sense for them. So that is awesome. kind of the, the, yeah. And how long have you been uh, working there? Uh, I joined uh, the center in uh, August, 2011. Um, and so I've been a little over 10 years and uh, my colleague Jean-Marie has been there for about 11 and a half and uh, Ben's I think nine and a half. So uh, we're all kind of in that decade or a little bit past decade of uh, experience uh, here in the, the Northern region. I even had my little taste of <clears throat> um, working with Amanda. I was a summer student and that would have been 2014. Yeah, yeah in the summer of yeah, 2014. So I worked, uh, Primarily on Amanda's crew, I worked with Ben as well and uh, John Marie a bit, but uh, mostly with Amanda. And some of the things that I remember doing when I was there was <clears throat> um, planting trees, measuring trees. Uh, when I was working with Ben's projects, we were uh, measuring carbon in the peatlands. Um, trying to think of some of the other stuff that we did. That was a lot of what we did during the summer. Um, I actually spent some time with uh, one of the other um, members from Nate, Mark Dewey, and uh, we had spent time traveling around looking at um, some of the past reclaimed leaf sites and capturing information on a variety of leaf sites around the Peace regions and beyond. Um, so that was my bit of experience. We also did some seed collections, I remember as well. So. Uh, driving around looking for <clears throat> poplar fuzz, balsam poplar and aspen and um, yeah, capturing seeds as much as we could for the greenhouse. So uh, that was my brief experience um, working there and it was very beneficial to me in my career, understanding um, a lot of the different ways that reclamation and remediation can be done. And uh, now that I work in industry, um, it's great to have some of that background and um, I think what Amanda wanted to touch on today is just some of the findings that <clears throat> she's had over the years and um, a lot of our viewers on industry talks of Fortech are people in the forest industries, a lot of foresters, professional foresters, a lot of the people that are making these critical decisions in the industry. Um, so Amanda, maybe if you wanted to just touch on sort of uh, during your time at the Center for Boreal Research, what has been some of your most interesting projects that you've worked on and why, and, and how does that relate to uh, industry? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to kind of pick one particular project. Um, there's, I, I like everything we do. So, I mean, I got into this field uh, really because of a love of science and a love of uh, growing plants. And uh, this job allows me to do uh, both of those things. So um, it's it's quite hard to, to pick and choose. Um, I, I think something I, I do want to talk about kind of integrates work from a number of different projects and this this is idea of our end goal so uh, when we are in and I'm going to speak specifically to um, sites that where we're trying to uh, either grow productive forest or potentially grow some sort of functional forest community um, I, I definitely am not an expert in, in wetlands so I will leave that uh, to another conversation that maybe you could have with my colleague um, but when we're talking about forest uh, land reclamation, you know, we it's it's more than just parking a few trees out there and, and calling it good. We need to ensure that what we're doing to these sites is going to put it on a trajectory to be a functional and resilient forest ecosystem. Um, and I say that because if we, we don't ensure we put that, um, you know, the soils in such a way and these basic structures and functions in a, in a particular way, we run the risk of these sites um, becoming um, at risk to uh, future disturbances. So if a fire rips through this site in you know, 5, 10, 15 years, if it's resilient, it should be able to regenerate after that fire. But if we haven't put back those good functional indicators and those good key functional species, these sites may actually go back to that sort of early successional phase of graminoids and herbaceous plants, and it may really set it back for a long period of time. Um, so I, I, I kind of wanted to discuss why we need to think uh, conscientiously about this and maybe some ways we might be able to go about it. So um, what we're seeing in, in many of our data sets is where we can put in resilience, put in uh, a mixture of conifers and uh, deciduous species, we probably have the better building blocks for something that will be um, able to tolerate a disturbance in the future. So if we have a fire uh, rip through that site in, in five or 10 years, if we have aspen or balsam poplar, paper birch in our mixture, uh, these species are known to sprout back out, uh, either from stump suckers or root suckers, and then that site will um, become a forest again one day, right? It'll just be set back by a few years. If we only plant white spruce to it or only lodgepole pine and the site is still very young, if the site's 100 years old, that might be fine. We might have a pure pine stand and a fire rips through and all the cones open and everything's good. But if the stand is young, uh, then that monoculture is going to be susceptible to that particular risk. And we may have an image of what you're, I see in the background of, of my um, my photo here. And this is a site I walked into last spring that had been planted to white spruce a number of years ago. And then it was either the 2018 or 19 uh, Burns West of Manning came through there and uh, you know burned that whole site down. And now the only thing regenerating is grasses. And in this site, because now it's being taken over by grasses, is likely to stay this way for many years to come. There was no evidence of aspen suckering into it or anything. So the, the site is at risk and it's, it's likely going to stay in this sort of early successional phase for many years. Um, so planting is, is certainly one way by which we can try to get some of that additional diversity in on the front end if we choose to plant a little bit more intimate mixture of uh, different trees and shrubs. Uh, another way is um, through some of our site preparation techniques. So if we prepare the sites in such a way that we can expose mineral soil for a longer period of time to create a better seed bed uh, for natural recovery. Um, so if we're planting perhaps, uh, again, conifers, this is common um, across the province to plant things like white spruce or lodgepole pine or chalk pine as you go further east. Um, hardwoods are a little less uh, common, though people are definitely planting more of them now because there is value and, and there is uh, benefit to doing so. Um, but uh, by and large, if you if you are going to focus on conifer planting, then at least if the seedbed is being prepared in such a way that you can get better seed rain. So 
you have um, you don't have it taken over by herbaceous species right away so that there's time for that balsam poplar aspen willows to actually seed into the site because if they can seed into the site a few plants can make a difference those few plants can start to spread and sucker into more plants and that's something we've been seeing on uh, some of our other projects after four or five years a uh, balsam poplar um, is actually pretty good at, at multiplying so it's multiplying through root suckers and actually occupying more of that land than it did in its early years so creating those conditions um, becomes ever more important and being conscientious about what those conditions are going to be is um, I, I think critical to knowing whether or not you're, you're creating the beginnings of a resilient system or, or one that is going to carry more risk. The other reason to do it outside of um, kind of resilience from these large scale disturbances is, is resilience from smaller scale disturbances and insect outbreaks and, and some of these other um, biotic factors. So uh, with the same idea, if you have um, an insect that is uh, host specific, uh, it could wipe out um, your single tree species if that's all you have on that site. And so planting more than one um, is another way to kind of buffer your own risk um, as you manage these sites. Because I mean, it'd sure be a shame if you uh, have sites where you've been growing your trees up for a number of years and you're ready to uh, certify it. And here we go, you get um, I don't know, spruce budworm or something that just rolls through and wipes out your um, your young plantation. And, and then you've got to start from scratch again. So uh, at least again, multiple species representing different types um, of tree species or even shrub species is going to help create some of that additional resilience. So that's like one of the, I guess one of the bigger things I wanted to raise today, it was kind of a long ramble. Um, you might want to interrupt me now and maybe redirect me onto, I don't know, a subsequent question or topic, but that's, that's one thing that's sort of top of mind that I'm seeing in a lot of our work now is just the importance of putting that structure in there. No, that was uh, super beneficial information for me and I really appreciate the insight on that. I had a couple of follow-up questions on, um, I guess shrubs, what kind of shrubs do you recommend planting um, in with say the conifer and, and uh, deciduous species? Yeah, it's, it's somewhat going to depend on your soils and, and the region that you're in, of course. Um, you know, some general things that, that we've been seeing. I mean, willows are going to do quite well, although willows tend to be one of the ones that come in um, better on their own. Um, so if you're going to spend effort in putting in shrubs, it's in some ways nicer to, to focus on species that you might not get through natural recovery uh, quite as readily. If you anticipate a very competitive site though, maybe planting uh, willows is advantageous. And as most people will know, um, you know, willows can be established from unrooted cuttings. So you can actually collect uh, willow sticks and keep them cold um, if you collect them in, you know, late spring or early 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 spring like april um, you can keep them refrigerated or frozen and uh, actually deploy them as unrooted cuttings in the springtime um, you do need to be conscientious about handling and the size of material and even the species uh, you collect it from so we've seen um, some evidence that there are certain species that really don't root well from an unrooted cutting um, whereas others do very well and i mean you can still collect seed of willows and actually use that for propagation or use cuttings and, and then root them. Um, if you have time, I would always advocate for rooting something over putting it in an, as an unrooted cutting, uh, mainly because of that uh, increased risk with a, a poor spring. So if you have a very dry spring, uh, those cuttings are, are going to have higher rates of mortality, whereas a rooted plant has a little less risk that way. So, um, you know, willows in certain cases, but again, you know, that's knowing your conditions and knowing what kind of site uh, you have, you may not need to. Um, alders are a nice group to work with. Uh, green alder, where you have more loamy or sandier soils, um, tend to work really well and they grow very quickly, um, And but they won't necessarily take over your site, but they'll actually create structural cover uh, very fast as, you know, your white spruce or lodgepole pine are, are coming up um, through the grass and clover and all the other things we're familiar with on these, uh, you know, post-industrial sites. Um, but in finer textured soils where, you, where they're a lot more clay rich, uh, we've seen a little bit more kind of mixed response in green alder, um, but 
we tend to get better response um, in that case with river alder, Alnus and canna. And this one uh, grows much taller. Um, you want to be conscientious on the, the densities you put river alder in at because that will take over your site early on um, just because it gets to be like five to eight meters tall. So, um, you know, you want to be conscientious of how much you put in there, but river alder definitely tolerates that more clay rich soil a lot better uh, than green alder does, at least from uh, places we planted it in. Um, and might be a better candidate. So it's, it's again, partly knowing those uh, site conditions. Uh, we've had good success planting uh, Western dogwood. Um, this one can be a little hit and miss to collect seed or have seed available for it, um, but it does typically do, do quite well on a, a range of uh, reclaimed industrial sites, um, but it is prone to browsing, um, which is, you know, depending on what your goals and outcomes are, isn't necessarily a bad thing. You just may not get very big cover from it um, in terms of managing some of the other species uh, on site because it, it will be preferentially browsed um, by local wildlife. Um, buffalo berry is another one, but again, this one, you know, in some sites we see it do really well and others not so much. It's a little more hit and miss. Um, that might be partly a consequence of stock quality and then also uh, perhaps uh, soil texture. I think it's maybe a little bit sensitive in the same way a green alder is to that really massive heavy textured uh, soils. Um, but I, I don't have enough data to kind of say that one way um, or the other. Uh, those are sort of the ones that come top of my mind. Um, but, you know, certainly there's, uh, there's lots of shrubs out there uh, that a person can monkey around with. And, and that's certainly how value um, one shrub that you generally don't need to plant. Um, but what we've seen in, in some other work uh, that tends to come in more readily with increasing ripping and, and soil uh, movement is uh, raspberries. So um, raspberries uh, are also nice in terms of creating a little bit of different cover other than graminoid cover or clover cover, um, but they, they seem to be enhanced where we have a more rough and loose condition. I think this is more um, having to do with that increased soil movement. So, you know, additional um, ripping or plowing that in increased soil disturbance uh, perhaps mechanically scarifies the seed more effectively. And then you get better seed emergence. Uh, that maybe is, is part of the reason, but in, in some quantitative work um, that we've uh, seen over the years, raspberry definitely comes in uh, better with a, a rougher uh, soil treatment. So um, again, in terms of enhancing, you know, what you have there, instead of planting it all, you know, some of these soil treatments might be uh, of utility that way. Hmm. I remember visiting some sites uh, when we were at Nate and uh, they were ripped quite heavily and I, if I remember right the reason for that was so that they're way less compacted and it's typically just going to settle back down right so the first year it's going to look super intense but it's going to you know settle over time and we're dealing with heavily past compacted sites so um, do you want to maybe just touch on like a bit about site prep and uh, what you think some best practices are or, or some things to maybe play with in regards to site preparation? Sure. Um, yeah, so site preparation, you know, can mean a, a number of things, right? So um, we'll maybe try to unpack that a little bit. So in site preparation, there's, I mean, there's decompaction, right? When we have soils that are truly compacted, we're decompacting them. Um, but we may also be doing site, pe site preparation to create heterogeneity. Um, we may be doing site preparation to break up a grass layer um, so in legacy sites or sites that have been sitting for many years and we need to try to reforest them in some way, um, we really are trying to, to do site preparation to displace grass sod. Um, so the treatments we use may, may be the same or they may be not, um, you know, depending on how much compaction is in there. So, um, you know, I think Babe Polster was one of the folks that says it best, you know, I mean, rough and loose all the way, um, whether you're going to mound it or plow it. Um, you know, create a condition that's rough and loose uh, so that you can get better um, uh, heterogeneity in the soil. And that heterogeneity uh, might actually create different seed beds. And it may also reduce something I've 
scene, at least, is on these rougher surfaces, I think that heterogeneity also reduces the pace at which some of these rhizomatous grass species can spread. They don't spread as effectively when you have a great big rough surface with lots of weird microsites that are maybe not available right away and gaps and voids. Um, it breaks up that uh, surface from being completely overrun by um, these more dominant graminoids. And then you can get a greater amount of heterogeneity in terms of vegetation development or give the site time for other um, species to come in, native herbaceous species. We haven't spoken much about that, but there's, I, I think, real value in uh, thinking about uh, native forbs uh, that could be put into these sites to help create again, structural diversity so that you don't end up in a one or two tree grass system, which is where uh, many of these sites end up going um, if, if left to kind of their own devices at times. Um, we want to try to impose as much diversity into that system as possible. So if creating a rough and loose condition holds the site from being taken over by any one species initially, um, that, that's probably beneficial to us. And the other reason for rough and loose um, or some type of decompaction, again, is to uh, create a, be a better growing environment uh, for the plants we're trying to develop. So even if the site is competitive initially with herbaceous species, if the uh, tree species we're trying to target have a, a looser soil condition, the soil is not a great big mass of clay, uh, that's going to be beneficial. The more effectively these species can develop a root system, the more effectively they're going to compete with other vegetation that, that comes in, and then the quicker they're going to get above that competing herbaceous canopy. But if we're planting into heavily compacted or not very well loosened uh, soils, that's you know a recipe for creating additional stress. And these species may come through it, but it takes a lot longer, and that time puts you at risk and puts the site at risk for other things that might try to wipe it out in the meantime. Whereas if you can um, do a better job of decompaction, um, then you might actually get much, you will get better tree uh, growth and development, better shrub development, and just occupancy with a wider range of species more readily than um, kind of conventional practice. So um, most, most folks that we've, or that we've, I've observed um, in sort of the, the reclamation field uh, will do some type of decompaction. You know, some straight rippers are, are common. Um, you know, something like a sift is ripping the, the subsoil or the clay that's underlying it. And then usually uh, um, other soils are placed over top. They're often placed over top with dozers. Um, and it's at that stage that I think we're reintroducing compaction if we don't do something subsequent. Uh, to that. So I, I would always, you know, advocate for after that, that topsoil placement, um, some other treatment is imposed on it, whether it's mounding or uh, plowing or something to that effect. It's creating that really rough and loose condition with lots of voids and cracks so that you can continue to have these free thaw events uh, progress over time and do that decompaction for you so that you don't really end up with a, a settled site right away. A bit of a long-winded answer because I don't think there is one particular mm -hmm. way it, it needs to be done, but it's thinking about the principles, right, of, of what yeah. what that site treatment is going to do for you and how it's going to behave over time. As you say, everything is going to settle, um, but it's a question of how quickly you want those things to settle and what vegetation is going to be able to take hold during that progression. Awesome, thank you for that. One thing that I've thought of before is there's quite a few sites out there that are, you know, naturally partly grown in or have some bigger trees on them. <clears throat> what sort of process do you think is the best for going about those sites um, that, you know, the access is completely grown in and the sites half grown in, um, but it maybe was never recontoured. Um, I guess it depends if there's infrastructure still on the site or not, but uh, I don't know much about partially grown in sites and what the process should be around those. I haven't dealt with it much personally. And I haven't either. So I've, you know, I've had an opportunity a few years ago to actually field tour uh, with a company that had a lot of sites like this. So um, they had a lot of these older sites where they had regrown quite well. And so they were dealing with 
smaller bits of infrastructure around Wall Center and a little bit of recontouring around Wall Center, but they actually didn't want to disturb a lot of the site because, as you say, a lot of it had regrown. Is it is it worthwhile um, ripping up the topsoil and subsoil piles to recontour it perfectly? Or is it better to treat that smaller teardropper well center and then replant that um, and without disturbing the other area? I don't know if I know the answer. Um, you know, there's regulatory consequences that have to be considered. And I think, yeah. you know, when you, these sites are probably really approached on a case-by-case -case basis and, and maybe a risk analysis of the risk of doing nothing versus the risk of doing something versus the risk of doing a lot of something. Um, that, that's, it's always going to be site specific. So um, it's another non-answer, but I, I think it depends. I don't, I don't yeah. think it should just be, yes, you always have to rip the site up or no, you always shouldn't. Um, it, it is going to be contextually, you're right, it is going to be about access. It is going to be about what infrastructure is already there. I mean, if you have a five kilometer access that you're going to mow down to treat, you know, a 30 meter by 30 meter area, I don't know, maybe that doesn't make very much sense. Maybe we need to look at other treatments or less invasive treatments. Um, so it, it's always going to be about that context and what, you know, what the, the local, um, folks that are out there, whatever that local community or local population also wants to see back on that landscape or how they want to see that um, area or region uh, treated. So, you know, an approach that I think more companies are going towards is this idea of area-based reclamation to try to circumvent some of these issues. Um, they go in, they disturb an area all at the same time and they roll out all at the same time. So we don't have these uh, little stranded sites <laughs> all over the landscape that you're trying to do as, as almost one-offs. So to, to try to eliminate some of those issues. Um, you know, and the other thing to think about too is although the, these stockpiles of soil may be really regrown with trees and shrubs, um, it's not that they can't grow them again. So if you still have a fairly large site that you really do want to recontour, reclaim properly, um, and you are going to need to disturb these uh, topsoil and subsoil piles with trees growing on them, uh, employ good practices when you're doing it. You know, hard, utilize the wood that's uh, sitting on those stockpiles for final reclamation. Handle the soils in such a way that you have lots of good root fragments um, from those stockpiles that are going to support that second uh, regeneration of forest. If, if handled well, that soil um, that's growing effectively a forest on it right now could be a real utility for reclamation of the whole area. So, um, you know, I, I think as a, a human population, we always feel bad when we cut down trees kind of intuitively, um, but trees do are capable of regrowing. Many of them are, and the system is okay with disturbance, right? Provided it, it's under the right context and, and right situation. So, you know, there's going to be cases where taking down those piles does make sense, trees and all, um, depending on the circumstances of that particular site. But that's where, again, you know, you're advised to really be conscientious about what you're ripping down and trying to utilize that good quality material because there's a huge uh, root property bank that's probably at your disposal that may allow you to not even plant any trees. You may be allowed to go to full natural recovery and get really good recovery if you don't mash up the systems excessively. So yeah, yeah. Right there, there, but that's, you know, understanding a little bit about the biology of what's growing in those piles, right? And how to utilize it more effectively. And it's maybe something that we don't do as often. Um, a lot of the piles we have have lots of grasses and other things in it that we want to you know, rip up as much as possible um, so that they don't spread. But you actually want to do the opposite with you know, the trees and shrubs growing on these piles. I wanted to touch on uh, spraying a bit. Um, <laughs> uh <-oh>. <laughs> <laughs> the topic always is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it can be subjective in industry, but um, I guess when, when is a good time to spray in your opinion and when is, when should you avoid it? And I think at the end of the day, it depends on what your goals are and, and things like that. But 
obviously if there's weeds that shouldn't be there, um, there's a lot of reasons to spray. Uh, what have you seen effective with spraying and what are some of the complications of spraying sites? Okay, um, so that, that's, a, you know, that's a hot topic. So um, <laughs> I, I think I'll preface all of this by saying, I may say things that counter what the regulatory requirement is, first of all. Um, so utilizing herbicides, um, again, comes down, you know, and you nailed it right away. So it's about the goals. Um, we utilize, you should utilize herbicide the way you utilize any other tool. And it's with that end in mind. Why am I using this herbicide? Um, what is it going to do for me by using it once, twice, or three times? Um, they are effective when they're used judiciously, when they're used under the circumstances that are valuable for them. Um, but at the same time, if we're using uh, herbicide to chase around a few noxious weeds and we're growing an otherwise nice forest vegetation community on that site, we might want to rethink that. Um, you know, I don't know if you've heard this or seen this, but I've, I've definitely heard it as a complaint from, from more than one uh, person over the years. You know, we send that herbicide crew in to manage some Canada thistle or something on a site that's regenerating nicely with poplars and spruce and, you know, nice native forbs. And you come back in five years and it's just grass because it was sprayed too heavily, right? They, in their effort to eradicate all those noxious weeds, they wiped out all the things that were regenerating nicely on the site. Because the thing that, quote, that kills a Canada thistle is the same thing that kills a balsam poplar and the fireweed and all the other good stuff that's in there. So, um, you know, we, especially post planting, post soil placement, I think we should be very conscientious and, and judicious in how we use um, herbicides. And again, have those discussions with the um, local forest officer or AER person, whoever it is your, your contact is in the field for these sites, um, you know, make decisions in the field. It, you know, am I okay with some weeds in this site if my site is otherwise growing uh, other things that I believe are gonna be functional um, and effective in the health of that system in the long run? And what's the risk? If I send uh, the, the herbicide crew in there, are they going to be very targeted and very specific in terms of where they're going to be applying herbicide? Or are they gonna do um, something a little more aggressive? Are they gonna run out there with an ATV with a, a sprayer on the boom and you know, run around grabbing larger patches and taking out larger areas um, and some of your other desirable vegetation along with it? So, you know, I, yeah. I think- Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say is, you know, as we were chatting at the beginning about having more species, um, like uh, deciduous species and shrub species and stuff, like if, like if it's in forest industry, if you're targeting conifer, for example, you can spray when the conifers are hardened off and not affect them. Um, but if you're going to be targeting multiple species that are affected by spray, then it's going to be very hard to target that specific um, noxious weed or, or undesirable species when you're you have deciduous and shrub on site especially if you pay to plant deciduous and shrub um following site prep when would you recommend the best time to like if you were going to spray a full site because say it had heavy grass come up or something before prior to planting um how long after site prep would you recommend doing that if the site prep say was done in the winter would you do it that next fall or would you give it a whole nother year? I would, I mean, if you did site prep in the winter and you have trees and you have a vegetation plan, I would always advocate for planting the site promptly. Um, yeah. So you get the trees in before the competition takes hold, right? So if you've done a good job of site preparation or decompaction, um, you've got this nice rough and loose condition you have your trees, shrubs, whatever it is you're going to plant available, you plant promptly. Don't get, you know, don't plant into heavy competition. If you're at that stage, then yes, um, you know, herbicide might be a viable option um, when the competition is already up. Um, and there's different 
things, I mean, different herbicides a person can can look at, right? I mean, certainly glyphosate yeah. is a widely used one, um, but there are other uh, potential treatments out there, but you have to be careful about the label. Um, Arsenal is another one that that is got some label use in, in forestry, but it's it's minor use and there's a lot of limitations in terms of how it's actually applied. So, um, you, you know, you do have to look at those things carefully, but uh, I would always advocate for just prompt planting because that gets you out of, you know, necessarily using herbicides um, altogether. And your site is then kind of at a nice loose condition uh, that your trees can take advantage of the best because it's not just above ground competition, it's also below ground competition that's impactful. Um, and as more stuff invades into that site, that below ground real estate becomes smaller and smaller. But if your trees are getting in there, at the beginning when you know no one's bought any houses in the, the new rec site uh, below ground so to speak um they're you know they're the the first houses on the market you know developing the root system out and uh, yeah. kind, of a, kind of a goofy analogy but um it, you know they're they're able to occupy that space first because they were there first mm -hmm. so so yeah I, I think if you're in a case where you've done site preparation your your trees are, are delayed or your shrubs are, you know, your vegetation deployment strategy is delayed, um, then yes, looking at uh, herbicide treatment, uh, you know, pre-planting, post-site prep, um, then becomes uh, an option. So, um, you know, there is some people experiment, you know, there is some uh, folks starting to look a little bit at pre-emergent uh, herbicides as well to try to reduce some of that seed. Right. Yeah. That will maybe buy you some time, but uh, pre-emergents tend to be um, specific to uh, seed base uh, regeneration. So if you have a lot of rhizomatous uh, species in there, canna, thistle, uh, grasses um, that are spreading through yeah. rhizomes, a pre-emergent herbicide isn't going to help you either, right? It, it, it needs to be some kind of post-emergent um, type of treatment. So, so yeah, again, right. planning, right? Plan from the beginning. So. I know I'm going to be doing earthworks on this site and recontouring, plan your, your sequencing out where you can. I mean, there is always going to be situations where you can't um, because that's just how she rolls. But uh, as much as you can, if you can plan out that tree order, site preparation, all of that in sequence so that it's one after another, I think this is the better recipe for a, a more kind of consistent and well-functioning acclimation product. Yeah. Speaking of timing, one that I've been running into has been <clears throat> the time of year when you, the budgets come out for the orphan wells. And uh, that's been a bit of a challenge for us, um, just like sourcing seed and things like that. Because um, I believe it's in like March or April, something like that for the upcoming season. So it can be quite challenging to figure out um, the funding approvals and then being able to still coordinate it all for that spring and summer. And I've been noticing a huge lack of trees in the industry um, at specific times. I think it's widely due to that because um, there's a lot of unknowns until when the trees should be growing and you should know what's going on for the next season. Unfortunately, you don't get your approvals or know until spring and then you got to try to source all these seeds and it ends up being a bunch of people looking for trees what I've been finding. So you're trying to plant trees within two or three months of finding out on budget? Mm. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, you're we've had grow? situations where, yeah, we've had situations where the budget's not getting approved until um, spring and those sites are tentatively scheduled to be like planted that summer. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> well, those are those ones that you control. Um, and we know that's out there. You know, partly, I mean, I think we just to touch on that, we're not, uh, we haven't been doing the, we're not a primary to the Orphan Well Association or anything. So we're just planting trees and sourcing trees and building, helping build prescriptions to provide insight to companies that are. Um, so I'm not as familiar with how exactly that budget process works other than just providing estimates and then waiting to hear that we have it approved or not. But um, so I can't specifically say like, I don't know if you can, you know, plan for it two years in advance or like have it planned the next, the year before for the next summer. 
like March for the next summer after and then do your site prep that winter or something. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly the process there, but I just know that it's been a concern for us being the people going out to plant the trees, um, not then having to try to source those trees for that year. Um, we actually had a whole bunch of sites this year that we were unable to plant because um, we didn't get approval until like April or May. And then we had to try to find seedlings um, for this summer. And then we didn't use the budget because we couldn't find the seedlings. And then now they got to reapply for budget for this spring and we don't, we can't plant the seedlings as fall because we don't know for sure that we got approved to plant those sites for the next spring. Yeah, so. and then you have seed zones to worry about on top of that too, right? Yeah, yeah. Even if you find trees, you got to have the right zone. So yeah, it's it's a bit of a pickle. So I think, I mean, part of the solution is, I think, education um, of the budget holders and, you know, walking them through the logistics of this process and how seedling procurement works, um, especially for non-commercial species. Uh, so, you know, the way we end up, you know, last minute getting things um, like this is going to be the commercial trees normally, right? And you're going to be getting yeah. overage from the forest industry or from the nurseries. They may have some extras, um, you know, for, for short-term research projects. I know I've called nurseries in the past for a few different nurseries uh, to see if they have little dribs and drabs for, for some of our experiments that are leftovers. Um, but that is, you're at the, the mercy of uh, what's Kind of kicking around at, at that point um so it's it's definitely suboptimal um i don't think there's a, a good single solution here other than you know educating um the, the budget holders about why we need to plan these things two years out ideally um and or um you know if you're the the um, company that's doing the planting um, the only other thing you can do is, is bear risk, right? Is have a standing yeah. order of seedlings um, that you are taking a risk on and you grow them in the hopes that you're going to use them mm -hmm. the next year, but they may, they may be a loss or you may find lots of good homes for them. Um, the good thing is yeah. even doing something like that, you know there's a whole bunch of other companies like you out there doing the same thing. Um, <laughs> that are also yeah. looking for trees, right? Someone's always looking for, for trees. If I, if I know one thing, it's someone's looking for trees every spring somewhere. Um, and it's, it's whether or not it's all compatible. Like, uh, I mean, maybe, yeah. maybe there needs to be like a, I don't know, a, last minute tree facebook club of some kind <laughs> in northern alberta that, yeah you sign up your overages and you know it's kind of like a uh, i don't know a tree dating app of some kind <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. people that way because um you know i'm just thinking like i had extra trees uh from the northwest on a project that i think you know some of them got chucked um yeah. I don't you needed trees you know we could have coordinated right but um you know so I think part of it is is calling uh the right people um and finding yeah. knowing who who's out there planting and, and that's a lot of these um smaller planting companies and um service providers there's a there's a number of them in in Alberta and it's kind of getting to know all those little players but I mean that's again not necessarily an efficient business either an optimal business model um, but that's kind of where things are right now. But I think that the better strategy is, is educating the budget holders um, on why we need to plan this out longer and that they're going to get a better product. Because yeah. now you say all those sites didn't get planted and that's important. That's going to have an effect on those sites because now they're going to be looking at other treatments to, you know, make room for the veg that's coming in and the subsequent planting. Um, and that all costs extra. And it may not be giving us as good a, uh, you know, a, a land reclamation product as we maybe could have because we haven't ideally sequenced uh, the revegetation prescription. So, um, yeah. I, I would say in the, like in the forest industry, working for um, woodlands groups, like it's very um, well-structured. It's, you know, you, they plant the summer and then they plan and look at the sites in the fall and basically put in their tree orders and, and uh, start planning for the next summer's planting. And um, that's the way 
that it should be, I think, in in the oil and gas or the reclamation industry as well. Um, so it's something that you're right, educate and, and strive for over time, try mm -hmm. to get better, try yeah. to have everyone get better together. So exactly, yeah, and communicating that, right? And you know, yeah. explaining what what it is, right? I mean, it isn't, you know, we don't go to Walmart and pick up some white spruce seedlings to go plant on our, our rec site. It doesn't work like that. It's not, it's not like the horticulture industry in that sense. Um, the, it, it's just, it's a different process. Um, so it's, it's educating. Um, and, and I think more people are being educated. I mean, I've seen a lot of good presentations. Um, you know, uh, Tree Time has given a number of presentations over the years. Uh, they're probably one of the bigger, um, you know, planting uh, vendors out there in Alberta. And they've given some really great talks over the years to, for the reasons of education, right? To, to educate yeah. the broader public. So, yeah, I think everyone's just got to keep, you know, doing, <laughs> doing the, the thing and pounding the, the conversation out to, about that and we'll get better. Yeah, yeah. definitely. <laughs> It'll save people money. Um, and I think, yeah. You know, add that to the conversation that this is a more cost-effective way to run um, will probably also resonate. Um, if, if people can tie uh, that longer planning um, and the need for that longer planning window to uh, cost savings, then you've got additional rationale that really starts to resonate um, yeah. with businesses. Well, we can, we, can, we can work for less money too if we know that we're going to have x amount of workload next summer because we are competing with forestry planting companies and tree planters want to secure their positions for this next summer mm -hmm. so uh next spring and summer so the earlier that we know the sooner we can know how many people we need to hire and the number of um qualified positions that we need to do and we can start getting those people hired and uh, rather than trying to pick them up after we know in, in May that we have to plant some trees this summer <laughs> um, and then trying to find whoever's left, right? Rather than um, having pre-planned six or eight months ahead of time, here's the workload, here's the, it's a lot more efficient for us and we can find better people for better rates rather than having to try to scoop people up and maybe having to pay more because we're looking last minute to fill our staffing capabilities. So, yeah, and I'm sure that I mean that works for any operating business, right? I mean, more planning the the better. So, yeah, um, yeah, always areas of improvement. <laughs> yeah, cool. Well, uh, that covered a lot of things. Um, really appreciate all of your insight and. I'm just going through my questions here to see if I had anything else, but sure. that was pretty much it. Um, willow staking success percentages. Do you have much information on that? Um, well, you know, I think we do have a couple of technical notes on willow staking. Um, the numbers vary a lot by species. So I, I mentioned this a little bit kind of briefly earlier, but there's some real species specific specificity roll that one off your tongue um, related to uh, survivorship uh, with staking so part of it has to do with the size of the willow stake um, if they're too small too thin um, they don't do well they don't presumably this is because they don't have sufficient uh, carbohydrate reserves in that stem to develop a root system and then develop a, a leaf system um, and then also the, the species. So uh, something like sandbar willow, um, Salix interior or Salix exigua, um, you know, we've seen root readily from a cutting. It's, it's probably one of the, the more readily rootable uh, willows out there. And then on the other end of the spectrum, something like uh, Salix bebiana, that's uh, Bebs willow. Um, it's much more of a conventional upland willow species. It roots very poorly. Um, from a cutting in the greenhouse and in controlled studies, I, I think we have numbers below 20% um, for, for that particular species. And then you have everything in between. Um, as, as a general rule of thumb, um, willows that you collect from wetter areas 
uh, tend to be in that right species mix or phenotype mix um, to, to root better in the field. Um, ones from drier areas, less so as a general rule. Um, that's not necessarily, you know, going to be true everywhere. Um, I, again, would always advocate for rooting those plants first, if you can, because uh, yeah. you're going to have better outcomes. Because um, now a, a cutting is at the mercy of the conditions of the year and the competition of the year. Yeah. And cuttings are expensive. So if you've ever collected um, hardwood cuttings, it, you know, something like a willow cutting probably shouldn't be less than 60 centimeters long, any upwards of a meter, I would say 60 centimeters to a meter in length and minimum, um, you know, width of your thumb uh, in terms of size. So that's like a pretty substantial sized cutting and getting that kind of mass. Um, and I think, you know, many are much larger than this. So um, this material costs a lot to collect and you're often yeah. collecting at the time of year when there's a lot of snow. So this makes it also tricky to collect cuttings in three feet of snow. It's just slow mm -hmm. um, that way. So that's kind of where uh, a rooted seedling is, is more beneficial, but cuttings have uh, willow cuttings have a lot of utility in, in bioengineering applications. And that tends to be, uh, where folks are, are utilizing them the most, right? Because they're also serving a structural function in terms of slope stabilization um, or, or related items. So uh, there's other reasons to use cuttings other than just for, for general reclamation. Um, but it, again, comes down to that goal. If it's just to have another species on your sites, I would, you know, take the effort to collect smaller material rooted in the greenhouse first and then outplant it. Um, but if time is precious and you don't have enough of it, at least make sure you try to collect from an area and species mix, if you can tell, um, you know, that is going to have more chance of success. Yeah, I would say the thing that I've seen happen quite a bit too comes back down to the budgets again, getting them in the spring and then having the plant at some point over the summer. Um, it's hard to be able to pick them in the, or cut them in the winter and root them. Yeah. Yeah, you, you have that time constraint again. So, um, yeah. you know, if you're looking at using cutting in the short run, you know, look at balsam poplar. Uh, balsam poplar can be um, grown in the field uh, with a much smaller uh, size cutting with good success, <laughs> good being relative um, for a cutting. So, uh, you know, provided the site is not overly competitive in the first year, um, we've had about 50%, you know, long-term growth success from using 30 centimeter poplar cuttings. So like the leading shoots on, you know, a, a bunch of poplar you'd collect on like a power line right away. You know, those things are always being shaved back. And so then they regrow and they're really nice material. So these are not large diameter plants, but they're nice terminal shoots. You don't have to monkey around too much with painting pots and things like this. You just cut the tops soak them and then outplant them. They're very easy to plant. And again, you lose half, but the other half um, provided good job of site prep, not excessive initial competition. Um, you, you have a tree species in the mix, at least from the front end yeah. and smaller material, um, which is beneficial because that's the, what I don't like about cutting collections is, is just that labor cost um, with the, the winter collecting. Yeah. Just make sure nobody plants uh, aspen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't collect aspen cuttings. They're not going to grow. <laughs> so, so yeah, you make sure, you know, whoever's collecting knows, they, they know what species they're looking at. I mean, they are pretty yeah. all apart, but yeah, anyone that's new to it might not see it in quite the same way. So yeah, conscientious, but your ID but, skills are good. <laughs> yeah, because I've had people that um, thought that you could uh, stake aspen. Oh, no. I, them that you cannot seek aspen they won't survive so yeah. um, just a good clarification for everyone that's listening balsam poplar and willow only yes balsam poplar willow only uh western dogwood also uh, does root from cuttings but i've never feel okay. as a cutting um but mm -hmm. i have heard people doing it in bc um where it's yeah. wetter um again dogwood you know, root it, <laughs> probably better to root it anyway, because you, it's hard to collect the size of material you need in the field because dogwood is browsed so heavily anyway. Yeah. 
Um, but it, it's another one that would potentially be able to root from uh, from a cutting. Okay. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Amanda. I had some really good um, takeaways. I got like four pages of notes here, but some of the key ones that I highlighted um, were uh, mixing some deciduous and shrubs in with your conifer species so that it doesn't end up like the picture behind you. Yeah. And uh, rough and loose site prep, um, basically just site prep in, in rough and loose characteristic is a lot of benefits. I wrote down a bunch of the ones that you had for benefits here. And yeah, just be cautious when you're using herbicide. Um, think about what your goals are before you go out there and do it so you don't end up killing a bunch of species that, um, that should still be there. And yeah, those are some of the main ones that I highlighted, but like I said, I have a few pages here. Um, actually, one question I had was the depth of planting uh, stakings. What would you recommend for depth deep? Yeah, it, it's probably a little bit of function of the size of the cutting you have as yeah. well. Um, but probably, you know, I mean, with a larger cutting, not less than 30 centimeters and B per is better. Um, the more you can get cutting into the ground and into moisture, the better. Of course, with a 30 centimeter cutting, you're probably only going to plant it 25 centimeters in the ground, right? Because you're going to leave a little bit yeah. uh, on the top. So it's a bit of a function of the, the size of the cutting. Um, so you know, it could be a third of the cutting of the ground um, or some permutation thereof, depending on the material size and, and also depending on the site condition. Um, if it's right. a really, really stinky wet site, you probably don't have to plant them all that deep. Um, but if you're using that cutting for bioengineering, you need to plant it deeper because you're providing uh, structural support with that uh, cutting. So um, like everything, depends on the condition. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. So, so uh, Amanda, where can people go to get more information um, on the subjects that you specialize in? Is there some sort of place that they can go to read some of your um, some of some of your findings over the years? And uh, is there any sort of you mentioned the research extension education? I know that I've attended a bunch of the uh, I think they were through like Facebook or something, um, and I've done some in person ones before COVID. Just wondering what uh, what sort of resources are out there for um, forestry professionals or people working in the reclamation remediation industry um, as to where they can go to find information to make sure that they're able to do the best that they can um, to achieve success on their sites other than just maybe more scientific information that they can utilize. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So, um, you know, our, our Center for Boiler Research has a, a website with all of our technical notes. We have videos, old presentations, um, publications, anything that, you know, that we can put out in the public domain, uh, we make effort to do. So um, that's, I, I can send you the, the link after um, this uh, podcast. And uh, more generally, outside of what we have within our own uh, research uh, organization, uh, there was a uh, national um, portal uh, that was launched, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago now, the CCLM uh, portal. I can send you the link to that as well. And that is a portal that has an amalgamation of information from a variety of uh, organizations and research organizations and nonprofits that have been putting out extension material um, on a host of topics, lots around land reclamation, of course, and wetland restoration and, um, you know, things related to uh, forest harvesting best practices. And uh, it's a, it's a, like I said, a national website um, that we, Nate, are, are linked into as well. And that would be a really great place for folks to uh, go to find all kinds of uh, resources. Um, and it's all at least in one website, right? So it's all interlinked um, there. It was a, a really nice initiative that was developed a couple of years ago by a group of organizations, including me. That's where I'd start anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Um, Riley, if you can add the links into, uh, into the YouTube video, video uh, comments when we, or into the recording, 
that'd be great. So people can know where to go. And uh, other than that, we really appreciate your time. Amanda, you have a wealth of information that you shared today and I'm super appreciated. I hope that our viewers um, get a lot of uh, information um, and hopefully that helps answer some questions that people might in the industry might have. And um, yeah, thanks again for attending Industry Talks with Fortech. No problem. Thanks again for having me and uh, yeah, have a happy afternoon.